You're listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. The very first national elections in New Zealand occurred in 1853, when there were only 5,849 registered voters. In order to be registered on that electoral roll, voters needed to be male, British subjects and property owners. In addition, they were almost exclusively Pākehā. Over time, the franchise was extended to Māori and women. Today, the current electoral roll numbers more than 3 million people. In this series, we feature presentations which cover a broad range of stories from Aotearoa New Zealand's evolving systems of governance, going all the way back to 1853. Well, I'm going to talk about the Prime Ministers of New Zealand. We've had 26 officially designated as Prime Minister, 23 men, three women. The term was first officially used here in New Zealand in 1900. King Dick Seddon assumed the title after he'd been to Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee and had heard the other leaders calling each other Prime Minister. He thought it sounded a step up on Premier, which was his official title. A few years later, in 1902, the Colonial Conference in London decided that henceforth the term Prime Minister would be used to describe the heads of all the colonial governments in the then British Empire. Why are Prime Ministers important? Interestingly, there's no statute that actually outlines their function. Instead, conventions have developed over the years. Prime Ministers manage the government's business. They speak for the whole of the ministry. They chair the cabinet. They allocate portfolios to ministers and they can fire or demote them. But in the case of the Labour Party, they can only appoint ministers who have been chosen by the successful Labour team of MPs known as the Labour Caucus. Prime Ministers are closely involved in questions of foreign policy, of course, and defence. And by custom here in New Zealand, they appoint the Chief Justice. In England, they choose the Regis Professors of at Oxford and Cambridge, and the Archbishop of Canterbury, who heads the Church of England, but they don't have those roles here. How does one become Prime Minister? In earliest times in Britain, the Sovereign chose whom to commission to form a ministry. But we're a relatively new country. Here, there has always needed to be a consensus within the governing party over who has the numbers to fill the top job. The election of the Labour Party's leaders in recent years has on a few occasions involved input from affiliated unions and registered party members as well. But under Labour, these add-ons are not involved if there's need for a new leader within three months of election day. You might remember that is how Jacinda Ardern got to lead Labour when Andrew Little resigned close to the 2017 election. But being a major party leader doesn't guarantee 
that one will become prime minister. We've had a list of people, Arnold Nordmeyer, Jim McClay, Don Brash, Phil Goff, David Shearer, David Cunliffe, Andrew Little, Simon Bridges, all found that out the hard way. The party leaders team has to win a majority of seats at a general election or by way of some upset in the house that gives a majority to the opposition. That's what happened in July 1912 when Bill Massey became prime minister. Under MMP, coalition with another party has been required for a leader to become prime minister. Occasionally, prime ministers are fired by their parties if their caucus loses confidence in them. This happened to Jim Bolger in 1997. It nearly happened to Robert Muldoon in 1980 at the time of the Colonel's coup and to David Longy in June 1989. In Australia, of course, it's a regular occurrence. The famous British politician Disraeli likened becoming prime minister to climbing a greasy pole. Many an ambitious politician falls. Luck and timing play a part in whether someone succeeds. I'll give some examples. In 1893, Richard John Seddon was acting in the position of Premier. He became Premier when his predecessor, John Balance, died in office. Seddon's main competitor for the top job, Sir Robert Stout, was temporarily out of Parliament. Seddon promised that he would continue to hold the job only if he was supported by a majority of the Liberal Party's MPs at their first caucus that year. But by six weeks later, when that meeting occurred, Seddon had buttonholed enough Liberal MPs, made promises to them that he had the numbers to retain the top job. Something similar happened in 1906 when Seddon died suddenly after his fifth and biggest election victory. His expected successor, Sir Joseph Ward, was in London. And in those days, there were no planes to fly Ward home, and it took him six weeks to get back to New Zealand. In the meantime, the Governor-General had to swear someone into office to hold the fort. Fortunately for Ward, that man, William Hall Jones, was honourable, and he stood down immediately that Ward arrived. Sir Joseph remained Prime Minister until 1912. Probably the luckiest of our Prime Ministers was George Forbes, who held the office from 1930 to 35 during the Great Depression. Forbes was an undistinguished fellow. He'd been in Parliament 21 years and hadn't even become a minister when he took over in May 1930. Uh, before, no, he, he actually was a minister at that stage, but had only briefly been um, when he took over in May 1930 from the dying Sir Joseph Ward, who was now in his second spell as prime minister. I couldn't find my picture in time of Sir Joseph uh, taking the waters up in Rotorua. There's a picture of him in a bath chair being wheeled around, looking incredibly decrepit. Uh, which was about the state of the government at that time. Keith Holyoke, who served in Forbes's caucus and later became Prime Minister himself, 
reckoned that Forbes wasn't up to the job intellectually. He said that Forbes only graduated from his school in Littleton because it burnt down. And in his history of New Zealand, Michael King says that Forbes once bamboozled his cabinet colleagues by declaring quite incorrectly that two thirds of something was more than three quarters. Forbes's deputy prime minister 1931-5 was Gordon Coates from the other coalition party, Reform. He declared in 1935 after working with Forbes for four and a half years that his boss's abilities were quote, absolutely nil, unquote. So while some skills and knowledge are usually needed to become prime minister, the rare one makes it with neither. Jacinda Ardern benefited from luck too. If Andrew Little had, hadn't delayed his resignation as Labour's leader until within three months of the 2017 election, Jacinda would have had to go through the time-consuming process of a ballot amongst affiliated unions and party members. There was no guarantee that she would have won a majority. At that time, she was an unknown quantity. Timing can work to somebody's disadvantage too. Keith Holyoke became leader of the National Party in August 1957, a few weeks before an election was due. But the Prime Minister he was replacing, Sid Holland, was suffering signs of dementia and refused to step down for another month until he was almost physically bundled out of office by his colleagues. Holyoke was left with little time to prepare for the election. He lost it to Labour's Walter Nash before winning office back again in 1960. Elections are a time for judgment by the voters on a prime minister's record over the previous three years or an assessment of the potential of an opposition. How does history judge prime ministers? Sometimes someone who seems full of promise can turn out to be a big disappointment. This happened with Gordon Coates, who was prime minister 1925 to 28. Look at that splendid photo of him in court dress. He's off to Buckingham Palace in 1926. Coates was a military hero. He'd won two military crosses in World War I. Tall, handsome, a fine horseman, many years younger than most of the other ministers in Bill Massey's ministry. He was the obvious successor when Massey died in May 1925. A huge razzle-dazzle election campaign was staged for Coates in the election that year. Slogans abounded, abounded. Coates off with Coates, read a huge election banner on which husky men rolled up their sleeves. Coates won the only really impressive victory enjoyed by the Reform Party during its 16 years in office. But Coates's problem was that he was a bit of a softy. He couldn't bring himself to fire Massey's tired old cabinet and he fumbled several trade issues. He soon looked like nothing more than a nice face presiding over a collection of tired and incompetent ministers at a time when the economy was facing a serious 
show, uh, downturn. At the 1928 election, Coates lost half of the Reform Party's seats, and he was voted down in Parliament on a no-confidence motion by the old Liberals, now called United, who combined their votes with Labour's against him. While he had many useful ministerial years left to him, Coates never again became Prime Minister. There's a lesson here. British Prime Minister Asquith once said, a Prime Minister must be a good butcher. Jenny Shipley certainly was when she fired her truculent Deputy Prime Minister, Winston Peters in 1998, but only, it needs to be said, after she was certain that most of New Zealand First MPs would stick with her on votes of confidence and supply. Helen Clark was quite a good butcher too. She dismissed quite a few ministers. John Key fired several too. Jacinda has been a bit more tentative, firing one, demoting one in a cabinet not renowned for its talent, while she hangs on to him like grim death. Keith Holyoke had a very effective way of controlling his ministers. When they were for, first sworn into office, he got them to sign an undated letter of resignation, which he kept in his safe for action if a minister transgressed. Ministers knew that as a last resort, he just might produce it. The best way of judging any government election time is to assess whether its policies were effective. With Seddon, the voters thought so. He won five elections on the trot because the issues he took up were very relevant to that stage of New Zealand's development. With King Dick, you knew where you were, settling people on newly opened Crown land and acting early trade union protection for workers, women and children, introducing old age pensions in 1898 and government superannuation for state employees. They were all welcome initiatives at the time. The first public housing project started too. Seddon promised them and the Liberals delivered. Some anyway. All these initiatives were filled with a growing sense of nationhood, health, welfare and happiness. New Zealand, according to Seddon, was God's own country. In his final years, 1904-5-6, New Zealand probably enjoyed the highest living standard in the world. The voters loved him, rough, coarse, grossly overweight as he was. Bill Massey was Prime Minister for a little under 13 years. He's our second longest serving Prime Minister. He retained support because he was perceived by enough people to have been fair during the strikes of 1912-1913. He delivered freehold tenure to farmers on leasehold land, and he did a reasonable job of handling our First World War effort and representing us abroad. Massey was aided electorally by the fact that his opposition in the elections of 1914, 19 and 22 were divided between Liberals and Labour, meaning that Massey could usually win this three-way tussle under first-past-the-post voting 
with around 37 to 39% of the total vote. Peter Fraser, who was Prime Minister 1940 to 49, is still Labour's longest serving Prime Minister. In my view, he's New Zealand's best Prime Minister. He was never loved as much as his predecessor, Michael Joseph Savage. But Fraser won huge respect from many parts of the electorate, both for his international efforts and for his groundbreaking contribution to aspects of the welfare state. Social security, health and education all benefited in a big way from Fraser's input. During the world wars where sacrifice was required, both Massey and Fraser oozed op optimism about the future once peace returned. Helen Clark once observed of prime ministers that they must always be optimistic. Let's look briefly at the prime ministers in your lifetime. I'm old enough to remember Fraser and his successor, Sid Holland, who presided from 1949 to 1957. That's the photo my mother always said of Sid that he had a face that was all hills and hollows, and you sort of can see it uh, there. Holland promised big in 1949. He'd free people from wartime controls. He'd eliminate inflation. He'd tame the unions. Well, he was successful with the last of these when he broke the Waterside Workers' Union and all the militants in 1951. But after freeing the country from controls, he reimposed a whole lot. And neither he nor any of his successors until the 1980s really tackled the cause of inflation that for more than 30 years exceeded the levels amongst those in our trading partners. The cause was excessive government spending. Inflation turned out to be the biggest single factor slowing economic growth during Keith Holyoke's years at the top in the 1960s. It caused us to slide gently down the world's prosperity rankings. No longer were we first, we slid down to 15, 17, 18. To keep farmers producing, Holyoke's government had to subsidize them with export subsidies and sheep, the sheep retention scheme. Norman Kirk once called this the family benefit for sheep. But the more that farmers responded to subsidies, the more they took their eyes off the market and lost any incentive to respond to changing patterns amongst consumers. They were being paid anyway. Remember those scenes in 1985 when front-end loaders shoveled sides of frozen lamb that were clogging our cool stores into Canterbury trenches and buried them because British and French consumers no longer wanted to buy large sides of lamb that our farmers were being subsidized to produce. In a country like ours that is so dependent on exports, a prime minister always has to, has to keep an eye on the marketplace and take advice from economists. Prime ministers must always respond nimbly to changing world demands. But there was nothing nimble about Robert Muldoon. 
He was both Prime Minister and Minister of Finance for nine years, eight and a half years. He controlled everything and was inclined to think that he knew everything. More than anyone, Robert Muldoon precipitated the radical changes that took place after 1984. There then comes a string of prime ministers, you'll know them, I do them in order, David Longy, Geoffrey Palmer, Mike Moore, Jim Bolger, Jenny Shipley, Helen Clark, John Key, Bill English. They all had to respond to the consequences flowing from the near collapse of the economy in 1984. To varying degrees, they were successful. Longy and uh, his Minister of Finance presided over a rapid freeing up of the economy and the reining in of expenditure between 1984 and 1988. Longy was essential to that first phase. He enthusiastically endorsed what was being done and he helped to sell the reforms. But in, in his second term, he got cold feet. He became a passenger for 18 months before he was in effect edged out of office, forced out of office, I think you could say. Any assessment of long years prime minister will always have to contend with that sudden urge to change horses and his increasing ill health and his chaotic love life. Jim Bolger rounded off that first phase of reform with the assistance of Ruth Richardson. Bolger helped bed in the changes he added several of his own, and funnily enough, kept quiet about his loss in faith, in his loss of faith in the free market horse that he rode until many years after he'd left office. By the mid-1990s, the New Zealand economy was booming once more, and for more than a decade, uh, 1991 to 2002, our economy performed better than the OECD average. Inflation came under control, interest rates subsided, unemployment dropped to very low levels, productivity improved for a little while, and this helped wages to rise. Helen Clark was lucky with her inheritance. She became Labour's most effective leader since Peter Fraser. She partly reactivated the state and with KiwiSaver introduced a carefully tailored response to the challenge of improving people's personal ratings, personal savings, sorry. That's, a, that's an interesting slip. The voters responded to these ministries by tolerating a national led government for nine years in the 90s then nine years of Labour, uh, 1990 to 2008, and nine more years of a national-led government under John Key and Bill English. While there was plenty of rhetoric, interestingly, none of them showed much appetite to roll back the basic reforms of the 1980s and the early 90s. But these days, there isn't much willingness in either party to aim for higher growth rates if any part of the status quo looks as though it could be adversely affected. A complacent Holyoke style mood rules once more in this country. Nobody will tackle intergenerational welfare. The number of beneficiaries rose rapidly after the 1972 Royal Commission into Social Security 
An underclass where an increasing number refused to work or to retrain for available jobs was allowed to grow. And only Bill English in a complex way seemed willing to try to tailor the welfare system to reducing the underclass. Well before COVID-19 came along, New Zealand's standard of living compared with other countries was sliding once more. Wages haven't been keeping up with Australia's for more than two decades, and productivity levels within business are sluggish. COVID-19 has almost certainly widened that gap. And so to the election facing us on the 19th of September. On the basis of statements today, I see few signs that either Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern or Todd Muller fully appreciates the serious economic position that this country is now in, let alone possesses any credible way forward except more debt and continuing mediocrity. Constantly trying to spend one's way out of social problems hasn't worked over the last 40 years and it's not going to work in the 2020s. The thrust of Dick Seddon, Mickey Savage, Peter Fraser, Norman Kirk, David Longy, Jim Bolger seems to have stalled as parties flatly refused to come to grips with the causes of poverty, homelessness, educational underachievement, crime, drugs, gangs, and uneven healthcare delivery. My message to you is this, keep hoping for a miracle on election day, but don't be surprised when it fails to materialize. As ever thus, Michael, ever thus. Yeah, um, we've, we've, uh, most people have just been enjoying it. So, you know, there's not been a lot of questions, but uh, Pauline, who's actually um, one of our genealogists in Sydney, she's asked, do you have any insights or thoughts about the wives of the 23 male prime ministers, Michael, the roles of the women? Because we did a whole day on women yesterday. Yes, uh, I've been asked quite often that question, and the short answer is that um, only one uh, Prime Minister didn't have a wife, didn't have a spouse, and that was Mickey Savage. He was a bachelor all his life. But the wives were very supportive and extremely important to the performance of the Prime Ministers. Uh, Seddon's daughter said that uh, her father never took uh, an, an important decision without first um, uh, taking it past the kitchen. And um, it, it was certainly true of Ward, who, um, whose wife had these flamboyant hats, but she was a significant figure in her own right, more important even than, uh, than Mrs. Seddon. Um, it was certainly true of um, Bill Massey's wife. She was a substantial force and was made a dame, I think, um, uh, in respect to her wartime work in particular. Um, George Forbes, I'm not sure. I, I don't recall much about his wife. Then Mickey Savage, of course, didn't have a wife. Peter Fraser's wife, enormously important during the war years. Janet was a force to reckon with. Uh, she once went along to one of Peter's election meetings and sat in the back row 
And I just wanted, because she was Scottish, uh, she came. I just want to ask the member. I'm voting for him, I hope. Uh, and she puts out a serious question. And uh, so she was uh, a lady that um, you didn't uh, trifle with. Sid Holland's wife was um, less significant, although it was widely believed that she was the only one of the pair who ever did any reading. And she would nudge her husband occasionally and say, oh, you're wrong on this or whatever. Uh, she, so she helped a little bit. Walter Nash's wife was pretty old uh, and she died while Walter was um, prime minister. Walter was nearly 76 when he became prime minister and Lot, his wife, was uh, not very well. Holyoke's wife was important. Uh, I recall first. Sorry. Yes, I was just, <laughs> I'm just being reminded of the handbag. And that was precisely what I was going to recall. I first stood for parliament in 1966. And uh, at uh, Holyoke's town hall meeting, uh, his wife came bustling out ahead of the prime minister uh, with this large handbag that she succeeded in pushing several demonstrators away with. And uh, she was quite a force to, uh, to reckon with. After Holyoke, who do we get? Oh, Jack Marshall. We didn't mention Jack Marshall. He was only prime minister for a short period of time. His wife uh, certainly played uh, a supportive role. Longy's wife, oh no, we'd better deal with Kirk's wife. Kirk, Dame Ruth Kirk, sadly didn't enjoy a great relationship with her husband and uh, there are various stories around in print from people who witnessed flying crockery and uh, uh, various other um, uh, aids to marital harmony and um, uh, so there were problems in the Kirk front. Glenn Rowling, uh, Bill Rowling's wife was a very important uh, support for Bill. He was only prime minister for about 15 months in 1974-5. Um, Muldoon's wife, Thea, Dame Thea, as she eventually became a significant force too. Uh, and uh, then Longy, uh, he leaves his wife really effectively not officially until after he ceases to be prime minister, but he was clearly having an affair quite some time before that. Um, Jim Bolger's wife was very significant. Um, and Bolger interestingly made a comment to me once. He said, you know, it's very difficult to get people to trust you if your life, your personal life is a lie. And I thought that was a very interesting comment. Mm. Oh, one of the interesting comments earlier was um, that, and I think that's the same Prime Minister because it's off my screen now, was very fluent in Maori. And so that was a very um, significant point in the 20s. I'm trying to think, oh, uh, uh, Coates uh, had some fluency in Maori. I think it was Coates that Philip yes. was Philippa that mentioned it. Yes, He'd it was grown Coates, up yeah. in, in uh, North Kaipara in uh, Matakohi, yeah. 
and his uh, he had quite a substantial affair before he was married with a Maori woman, and I met their daughter on one occasion. In fact, she lived to the ripe old age of 103 and only died a few years ago. Uh, and I chatted to her, um, was quite, uh, quite interesting. And Coates was minister of, they called it in the twenties, native affairs. And uh, he was, he was pretty good um, at talking with Maori and enjoying their companionship. Yeah. Back in the um, 19th century, of course, uh, Sir George Grey, who was a premier, not a prime minister, uh, Sir George Grey, premier 1877 to 79, uh, spoke pretty good Māori too. And quite a few in the 19th century did. Um, so hold on, I've just got, oh, I've got another question. So, um, Randolph would just like us to, to clarify. So the PM's wife doesn't have a particular scope of political activity in her own right. I'm getting the impression that they're typically expected to support, serve in a supportive role for the individual male politician. Well, uh, I mean, a, a, a good wife does that, a good partner does that. Uh, and um, I mean, it's true of the men who uh, are supporting the three have supported the three women as uh, prime ministers. Um, your partner, if it's a good relationship, will be supportive automatically, I think. It's very time consuming job too. And so if you want to see your partner, um, it's it's quite good to, uh, to join the person and uh, be with them and travel a bit with them. Now, I'm just thinking, I can't think of any politician whose partner actually had an active role within the political party, which would have then enabled them to have a uh, more upfront role. I offhand can't think of one, but probably uh, when we move on, I will remember somebody. <laughs> well, That's well, usually, usually the way it happens. Um, uh, Philip has just commented about Margaret Pope, and, and um, she's just written Margaret Pope, so maybe Margaret did have a political role. Is that what you're meaning, Philip? Well, she, she was a speechwriter for uh, David Longy um, after he became oh, leader of the opposition, yep. and then she came into his office, the first person appointed to his office, interestingly, and um, uh, she gradually became his partner. And uh, she's just written question mark influenced. Do you think he had an very considerable influence in the in the later stages? I mean, David's is a very sad case in a way because that enormous enthusiasm and ability and and infectious quality that he had, the enthusiasm at the beginning, fades as he gets sicker and sicker and he had diabetes, his heart was causing problems. Um, he uh, then ended up with other uh, medical uh, uh, difficulties as well. And in that increasingly enfeebled state became reliant on uh, his friend. Mm. Um, Joe McCracken from the, the National Library is in the room. Um, and she's commented that there's an article she's posted earlier about Janet Fraser. 
Um, Janet Fraser became active in politics as the first secretary of the Wellington Women's Branch of the yes. New Zealand Labour Party. Yes. And that's from an article that Hillary, and if I go up the screen, Hillary Stace, Hillary Stace wrote. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, that's absolutely right. And Janet also um, it was a Labour representative on the Wellington Hospital Board uh, for a time. So she did have a bit of an ind independent career. Quite a few ministers did that. I mean, my wife, who is about to take over from me, uh, had a longer political career than mine at the local level. Um, so thank you for that, Michael. That was really fascinating and uh, um, such an easy voice to listen to as well. You've been listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. You can find further information on our page at SoundCloud or see the Auckland Libraries website 